Well, well, well. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome back uh, to Bible study after a frigid week off. Hope everybody stayed warm last week and uh, didn't lose any pipes or anything like that. Um, but uh, looking forward to uh, sharing the evening with you. Uh, Pastor Kurt promises he's going to be here shortly. And uh, so he got hung up uh, at home and he is going to be here very soon. And I'm grateful because this is some interesting stuff that we're going to tackle tonight. Um, so if you'll, if you'll recall kind of where we are at the end of the book of Ezekiel, all this is going to make sense with our prayer here. Um, we are seeing this vision of a fully restored temple, like a temple on a grander scale that they, they could have ever imagined, and a restored Israel. Remember back in uh, chapter 36 uh, that what Ezekiel heard was that God was going to take out of Israel their heart of what? Remember? Their heart of stone. And was going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Right? Uh, He was going to cleanse them. And uh, man, it's like... All of this renewal was going to happen. And one of the things that a question that has to be raised when you're seeing this temple and all that's going on is what is the place of the sacrificial system once you have a new heart? Right? Is it the same? Is it different? And one of the things that we've been saying all along is that Um, that the Garden of Eden, this temple here in Ezekiel, and the vision that John has at the end of the book of Revelation, you know, the New Jerusalem, it's all the same thing. But each person who experienced that had to see it in a different way so it could make the most sense to them, right? So Adam is seeing the Garden. Ezekiel is seeing this temple, and John is seeing the New Jerusalem. All the same thing. Uh, God at work making things, you know, the original temple, the garden, and God is at work making all things new. So in light of this conversation we're going to have tonight, Pastor Kurt, uh, that we're going to have tonight about the sacrificial system, the renewed sacrificial system, I thought that Psalm 51... Um, would just be a good good place for us to land tonight in our prayer because it says some things about sacrifice that are just a little unexpected, right? That there's something about our hearts that as Judaism progresses that seems to take priority over the sacrifices. And that's kind of hard to say and to hear. And everybody said, yeah, so he's going to get you, get his uh, headset on and we will pray while he does. Let's pray. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgression, wash away all of my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. The bulls will be offered on your altar. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Ezekiel, deep, deep into Ezekiel, but we're in the good part. We're getting a front row seat tour of heaven. Well, that's no small thing. We always wonder what the afterlife is like. We always want the details. And so God is giving it to us through this priest, Ezekiel, or this prophet that was born a priest, Ezekiel. And the problem is, we don't like what he's seeing. It's a challenge. It's always been a challenge. When we started, remember I warned you, even in Jewish sources, there was a great debate about including Ezekiel in the Bible. They didn't want to do it. It was revelation for them. It seems so strange and so weird. It can't possibly be right. And the primary reason they wanted to reject it is what we're going to read tonight. Much of the temple ritual, this temple that Ezekiel has seen in heaven, is it like the temple he knew on earth? Not at all. It's nothing like it. The dimensions are bigger. The layout is different. It, it has things that the other one didn't. And that process is going to continue tonight in how you worship God. And it's so different, it really cannot be reconciled with what originally was given to Moses. So the Jews wanted to throw it out. By the same token, as Christians, we get hot and bothered. Why would there be sacrifice in heaven? Is there sacrifice in heaven? 
That doesn't make any sense. We don't like that. So tonight, we're going to try to work our way through it and understand, like we talked about last week, this is through the eyes of a man who was born a priest but was never able to be one. And yet his heaven makes sense as a priest. If we brought Adam and showed him heaven, I think it would look like a garden because that's the way he knew God. We actually have this happen. Daniel will see the same thing, and John in the New Testament will see heaven as well. And their descriptions overlap, but they're different in some areas based on their life experiences. Now, I don't want to give you the the sense that heaven is just whatever you imagine it to be. There there is a commonality. It is the place of God, and it is a place where we worship God, we have relationship with God, we continue with God. And there's lots of things. Remember, I gave you the punchline last week, the, the great moment that's supposed to be the ending. So I don't know if that was a mistake, but what is flowing out of the throne of God? Water. Not just any water. What is it? It's living water. God was revealing to Ezekiel, I've got this plan, and from my most holy place, I will come out and I will bring life to the Dead Sea. I will grow the Garden of Eden again. I will grow the tree of eternal life again. I will change all of creation so that you can be with me. So that was the hard part. Uh, And that's really where all this is going. We're kind of backtracking a little bit to review some of the more familiar things for Ezekiel. I let you have the punchline so you'd hang with me, okay? (laughs) So you know where it is going. Please hang on. I think we'll pick up in chapter 44 some of the details that he's seeing about this temple. Remember, he's being taken around by an angel. And this is a pattern Daniel goes through and John goes through in Revelation. This angelic host with a measuring stick uh, tells him, remember how tall this wall is. Remember this door frame. Remember, you got to write all this down. Did you get it? Okay, let's move on. So 44 verse 1. It's Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 1. Then the man brought me back to the east gateway in the outer wall. So if you're following your scripture, underlying east and outer wall, those are really important for us. Who always comes in the east side of the temple? God. This is sometimes called the golden gate because it was tradition that you would decorate this portico with gold because this is the man's entrance. This is God's entrance. Remember when your boss had a parking spot, right? reserved for the boss. Tim Walker had a reserved parking spot. Um, It's really fun if you knew Tim Walker. That was his parking spot. Jesus could not park in that parking spot. So God has his entrance, right? Don't go in God's entrance. But what's important is Ezekiel saw God leave through the eastern gate. The hardest, maybe... Not Well, one of the hardest, losing his wife was hard. But seeing God leave his people, just about broken. To know that God has seen us, seen what we do, and even he can't stand to be here anymore. So this eastern gate, a lot of excitement, a lot of trepidation. And this is the outer wall. But it, 
This eastern gateway was closed. And the Lord, so not the angel, look how that's spelled, Yahweh said to me, this gate must remain closed. It will never again be opened. No man will ever pass through it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, entered here. Thus, it must always remain shut. So chew on that for a minute. We got to hold on to, we're getting a tour of heaven. But Ezekiel is getting that explanation in little bits. It's not going to be the non-corporeal, eternal, metaphysical existence as we would try to explain it, right, in our modern uh, theology or physics. What does it mean that the eastern gate will never be opened again? God is not what? He's not leaving. He's not coming. He's not going. He's staying put. In this place, for Ezekiel, God will always be. Now they are explaining it in a little different ways. John will explain it his way. But important that we get the symbolism there. God saying to us, I will never leave you. Not again. What we're going to do with the river, what we're going to do with sacrifice, will change everything. So that your place will always be with me. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? God left an emergency escape route for himself. <laughs> if he got sick of us, but he said, I'm not, we're not using this. This is, this is shut. What does that remind you of? Anything? Like Genesis-wise, maybe? Like the flood? And how he's... He has, he has done something decisive with the flood, and then he has said, I'm not going to do that again. Right? Same thing here with uh, the Israelites. So are we tracking? All right. Verse 3. Only the prince himself may sit inside this gateway to feast in the Lord's presence. But he may come and go only through the gate's foyer. So Ezekiel has had a number of sort of mysterious figures. And now we have the who? The Nasi. Yeah. Uh, and that's, like Steve said, Hebrew Nasi. It's, it's a prince. It's not a king, um, but it's, it's a prince. And he is afforded the royal honor of sitting in God's gate and feasting in God's gate. And the way they word it here, I think they're trying to reflect the Hebrew. Uh, Prince himself may sit in the gateway in the Lord's presence. Now this may be a bit of a stretch, but there was a vision in Daniel when they saw God on his throne and hundreds of millions of angels were attending God. But none of the angels really were standing in God's presence. I mean, there was this light. They tried, excuse me, describe the throne, tried to describe God, but all they could really do was describe the things around it because to look at God was, was too much. But Daniel said, as I was looking into this incredible light that was God, I discerned too. There was God on his throne and there was something else. I don't know what the other thing was. 
All I could tell you is that it looked like a man in the shape of a man. And everybody that heard Daniel said, what? I never heard that before. I thought there was one God, only one God. Who, who, that, who is the other one? So they began to get really curious about, and as it appeared in Aramaic, one that peered unto some bloods. I can't get it right. One that appeared unto a man, which they will shorten it into son of man. What is the title that Jesus tends to you? Well, he uses more than any other. Son of man. That doesn't mean he had a human daddy. It's... connection to Daniel, where they were saying there was a second figure in the light of God, and it was right there, holy with God, but it was not God. It was, it was two things. The Jews come up with the phrase, two powers in heaven. Uh, this is where it comes from. So Ezekiel doesn't know the identity of this prince yet, but he knows a lot of, about him. He again is in the presence of God. He feasts in the presence of God. He uses God's entrance. So who could park in Tim Walker's parking spot? His son, Steve. (laughs) Did you ever park in his parking spot? Not when I was here before. I did not, no. We had new staff that would do it, and I would make sure that as a senior staff, I didn't tell them where they parked so they could experience the full joy (laughs) <laughs> anyway, are we good? So I want to. So I, I really think Pastor Kurt is is following a a, a great train of thought there. Um, it's like who would have Ezekiel been? In, who like in Ezekiel's mind? Who would have this prince be? Well, who was the prince of the temple or the prince of Jerusalem? That's it's really the king. And so if you look in back in Ezekiel chapter seven. I think it helps us here. Uh, Verse 27 says, The king, well, that's certainly the king of Jerusalem there. The king will mourn. So this is poetic. And so remember one of the the key attributes of Jewish poetry is these, what do we call them, doublets? Mm -hmm. Doublets. And so he'll say one thing in one way and say the same thing but use slightly different words. To say to drive home the point, the king, verse twenty-seven. The, that's Melech. The king will mourn. The prince uh, Nasi will. The prince will be clothed with despair. So I think this is the same person. It's it's the leader, the son of David, right? The the line of David, which this is Jesus calls himself the son of man, and everybody else calls him what? Son of David. The son of David. And so it seems as if that may be what Ezekiel is seeing, but it's like it's cloudy for him. We have the benefit of being on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and so we're able to see it through uh, that lens because later the prince has to be sacrificed for. Well, that, that ain't that's not Jesus, right? But that's what... Ezekiel would have understood. And so that's why he's seeing it in the way that he he did. Um, But certainly I do think that this prince is something looking forward uh, to the Messiah. 
And the final thing we'll say about this prince uh, is that he is the one that comes and goes. He uses the foyer, and it, there is sort of this direct connection that he is the living water. He is the river that's leaving. Yeah. God is in the holy place, and the Son of Man, the prince, goes uh, to, to us. So again, it's all through things that he would understand. Like Steve said, who's the royal family in Judah? They only ever had one. It's David. That's it. Uh, so it's, it's the son of man, son of David, son of Joseph. But our tour's not done. Then the man brought me through the north gateway to the front of the temple. So the north side is where worshipers would normally enter. Or, yeah, depending on the sacrifice, but for the most part. Um, I looked and saw the glory of the Lord. It filled the temple, and I fell to the ground with my face in the dust. And this is, oh, this is so, so packed here. Again, he saw the glory of God leave. And when we say that, it always reminds me of sort of bad hymns that I had to sing as a kid, right? I didn't completely understand the glory of the Lord. But I know you had to say it funny. You couldn't say it like a normal person. But um, God's essence, his power, his, his appearance is so powerful that it's like there's energy around him that is its own being. I, I, I don't know. They call it kavod in Hebrew. It's the presence. And so just God standing in a place changes a place because he is so much. He is so, pardon me, but so real. You, you sort of follow? I mean, he, he is so fundamental himself that being in a place, he changes a place. So that's why they revere the temple. That's why to be in God's presence is to realize I'm, I'm nothing. And not just in a you know, spiritual way, but compared to the being that has always existed, I'm nothing. When they fall with their face down to the ground in the dust, I mean, it's a sign of sort of ultimate humility, but also where do we come from? Dust. dust. We're Adam. We've been following this all along. We're, we're nothing. So what Ezekiel has always wanted, God to be back and God to stay with him, him to be a priest, to be close to God, it's actually happening. That Yahweh himself, not just a name or a card or, you know, we're God's summer home, his place is now really with Ezekiel, with the people. Part of me wishes that we had some of the geography that they did back then. If you want to be close to God right now, I mean, you just have to be near God. Where do you go? Where? I can't hear you. Yeah. A silent place. Um, and... That's good. I'm, you know, get down on your knees in a quiet place. Uh, sometimes for me, it's in the car. Uh, sometimes it's in the shower. Uh, you know, as a parent, you just get away where you can. Where, where do you go? Chapel. Yeah. Um, we we come to church. Um, hopefully, sanctuary. Sometimes the chapel. 
But to know of a mountain that God rested, that God lived, that God's kavod, God's glory was always there, I think was a powerful thing. No matter what, until he left, God was there. And you could go, you had to be careful the way you approached it, but you could go and know that God was there. Now, I think we can know God's presence now, that we can be assured that when we call on him, he, of course, will be there. So there's a developmental stage that he's led us through. But part of me would like to jump in the time machine and go back some days and just look, just be able to say, all right, I know he's right there. Uh, he's, he's grown with us, but that, that would be powerful. And just remember where, like, in, in the Old Testament, what were some common features of where God, God's footprint was? On a mountain, like Pastor Kurt said, and by trees. 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 The trees of Mamre. Places like that. And, um, and what's growing, you know, like we talked about last week, all these trees are growing. It's this... Uh, this image of God's presence uh, springing up in their midst. So we need to get into the issue of sacrifice. And as I think about it, the gulf between where we are and where they were is so enormous that it's almost impossible for us to get a sense of what it meant for them to sacrifice. We, of course, do not need to sacrifice. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and in a sense, that system is done. But for Ezekiel, that system, the sacrificial system, is the way he worships God, is the way that he loves God. Is it perfect? God designed it. Depends, I guess, the way that they do it. But... It's so hard to throw those out. So let, let me try to offend you. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever that we should do the Apostles' Creed. People either know it or they don't know it. To read it in a boring-sounding voice on Sunday is irrelevant. There's no reason to say the Lord's Prayer. Do you know why? Because we get it wrong. You're actually not saying the words that Jesus said, at least in the latter half. You're just adding what King Henry VIII Remember him? Ladies' man extraordinaire wrote the end of the Lord's Prayer to improve his reputation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus didn't say that. King Henry VIII said that. Or at least he's the one that gets the credit for including it in. So don't do that. It's not necessary. Believe me? I mean, everything I said is fundamentally true, but... I want to say, uh, I've prayed the Lord's Prayer in times of great crisis for my life. Sometimes I didn't know what else to pray. And there's been incredible moments of that. I know God has heard me. We've done it in church and it's been powerful. Uh, I don't know about you, but the world has completely forgotten the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we, some very fundamental questions were answered about God and the creed that the world has a hard time with. So yeah, we still need it. God didn't ask us to do those things. 
God never asked for an organ, never asked for a piano, never asked for a guitar, never asked for lights. He did sort of ask for drums. They're a little bit in there. But we do a lot of things to worship God that we like. So am I getting you riled up? Oh, come on. Ezekiel would have felt this way if we started saying, look, Ezekiel, you don't need to sacrifice anything. The the prince guy that you saw, you should pay more attention to him. He could tell you about the time that he had a daughter. And I brought that perfect lamb that represented how thankful I was to God that I had a perfect baby girl with ten toes and ten fingers. And when she smiled, it melted my heart. So I gave the best that I had. Sometimes we don't understand what they're doing in terms of raw economics when they make some of these sacrifices. This isn't reach in my wallet and pull out a couple of bills. This is like you saying tonight, I am so thankful that I got a good medical report from the doctor. I'm going to give my truck away. The truck that I waited a long time to get. Now, it's not the cheap standard off the lot. I mean, the, the nice truck. I'm going to give it to a single mom. I could drive something cheaper. I don't have to do that. God is not going to suddenly be amazed and love me more because I do it. But I am so thankful to him that this has happened, that I'm willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice is such a natural part of love, isn't it? And if your definition of love is, I don't have to do it, Valentine's Day is going to hurt, right? Gentlemen, do you have to buy your wife flowers? Mm, yes, the answer is yes, you do. But it can turn into something pointless and mindless. I mean, if you, here are your flowers, and, you know, that's, that's that. The, the object of the sacrifice is simply a symbol, a sign, a symptom of the relationship. God will say in a contradictory way, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't care about your bulls. I don't care about any of that. I could, don't give me another one. I'm sick and tired of it. And on the other hand, he says, there is nothing more pleasing to my nose than the sacrifice of my people. The burning of the bull brings joy. And when God says joy to his heart, it's a huge thing. So we we, got to get the difference. It's not magic. It's not an economic exchange. Now, most pagans thought that's the way it worked. If you wanted God's attention, you gave him the best you had, and the God would be beholden to you, right? If you buy the girl dinner, she's got to give you a kiss. Right, Rayford? (laughs) Isn't that what you told me? Oh, wait, no, no. It was something else. (laughs) But she owes me, right? If you give God a bull, which was like a house, we're not even talking about a car. This was massive wealth. Can you imagine what it is to raise cattle in a Rocky Mountain with the rain that we get here? 
I mean, it, it, it's not easy. You don't have a bunch. So it's like saying, I'm giving up my lake house because I want to say thank you to God in a way that costs me something. I do not believe for a second we ever should go to an animal sacrificial system. I, I don't. It's not for us. It never was meant for us. But I do think we need to think about the process a lot. Because there's emotions, there's, there's things that are behind this that God really, really cares about. Don't tell her this, but... So my wife uh, changed jobs. She was in Odessa, you all know this, and she came to Midland. And uh, Laura Nordoff was, was incredible to her and, and so, so welcoming. I mean, Lisa was the number one in her office, and she wasn't... She, she had to take a step down. And when you've been in an office, right, you get a lot of vacation, you get a lot of time off, and that doesn't necessarily transfer. So Lisa gave up all that so she could be closer. My wife now, and I shouldn't say this, but it means a lot to me. She works through lunch. She will not take the hour off for lunch so she can save up time to be with Jason and I. When Jason goes on his tournaments, the time that she has is her lunch breaks. She doesn't have to do that. And in the, the scheme of things, it's, you know, not, not a big deal. But it is a big deal, isn't it? That's what sacrifice is. So Ezekiel is going to see a sacrificial system that's still going on. And Christians want to freak out. This sacrificial system is worship. They don't have to do this. Not, not in the sense that they had to do it before. So, I mean, here, I'm going to go on all night, but <laughs> d- d- does, that, does that gel? I mean, does that, am I getting that? Okay. Can I do the lamb thing? The what thing? The lamb thing? Yep, do the lamb thing, and then I'll okay. pick up the lamb thing in Revelation. How's okay. That? So this is what I'm talking about. Jump over to 46 with me. 46 verse 13. God has just gone through uh, the type of worship, the type of sacrifice that's going on. And remember in the beginning I said the Jews didn't want to include this. The reason for that is because these sacrifices are so different. They don't make sense with what Moses heard. And so they couldn't reconcile them. Uh, So it bothered them a lot. But... See if you get what's going on here. This is 46.13. Underline this, mark this, hugely important. Each morning, a year-old lamb with no physical defects must be sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord. So every morning, the first thing that we start with is a one-year-old lamb with no physical defects. You burn it. Now this should instantly ring bells. I tried to borrow uh, a lamb from um, a friend whose uh, father-in-law raises him. And I was saying this sort of biblical way. It has to be a year old, no physical defects. And apparently it's hard to get them, right, when they're a year old. They're, that's your toy. They're too small. They're too, they're too fragile. Uh, this is a very specific type of sacrifice. Does it ring a bell for you? It's what? 
when else was this done in the Old Testament? It's Passover. Yeah, which it, it is Jesus, right? This is the Passover lamb. And the, these exact instructions were given once a year. When we remember that we were delivered from Egypt, specifically we were delivered from the angel of death, we took this perfect one-year-old, and why God's on the one-year-old kick, I think there's a reason. Um, we take this lamb. You've got to take care of it in the Passover tradition for four days, which means keep it in the house. It's the only animal they will ever bring in the house, really. So what, pray tell, happens when the kids have a beautiful one-year-old lamb living with them in the house for four days? They get a little bit attached. They name it George and, you know, pushing it around in a buggy. And on the fourth day, the head of the household, the husband, has to take a flint knife, cut the animal's throat, smear the blood on the doorposts, and make it clear to all assembled in the house, the only thing that will save us and saved us on the night the angel of death passed by was this blood of this innocent one-year-old lamb that did no harm. He took our sins and died. This is the Passover lamb. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate what? When he dies? Passover. Again, I love a painting of this. Can you imagine the whole city? Filled with one-year-old lambs, prepared for the slaughter. Jesus looking at him like, yep, this is what I know. The night he's with the disciples in the upper room, they are eating lamb for the Passover lamb. So now Ezekiel is seeing in this heaven temple the key sacrifice the every morning. And God will say in a few minutes, uh, this is permanent command. You can never miss this. This is what we will do together. Let that sink in for a minute. The way that we're interacting, um, let, let me finish it. So it's a burnt offering, which is exactly what it was in Passover. With the lamb, a grain offering must also be given to the Lord and two and a half quarts of flour with a third of a gallon of olive oil to moisten the flour. This will be a permanent law for you. The lamb, the grain offering, and the olive oil must be given as a daily sacrifice every morning without fail. So this is the most fundamental thing that we're doing in heaven. And it's all about Jesus. Now we get the lamb part. That's a little bit clear for us. So the flour and the grain is a little more challenging. But what do we make out of that? Bread, which the word bread is, is lechem, is life. So in a sense, you're offering the life of this lamb that's pure and blameless. And please tell me you get the olive oil reference, right? What oil are they using? Olive oil, that is the tithe oil. So when you harvest your olives, the first time you squeeze it, it comes out nice and golden, like we buy at Walmart, except for that's been processed. Um, about the third or fourth time you do it, it looks like car oil, and that's what they're eating. So the tithe oil, again, the sacrificial system, you take the best and you set it aside and say, this is for God, this is holy. 
But that is the word Mashiach. That is the word Messiah. So they're taking the lamb that takes the sin away. They take life that is pure and sinless. And they take Mashiach, that is the anointed, the, the Christ, and they offer that to God every day without fail. That's the fundamental uh, sacrifice of the whole system. See what I mean? It's not, we've got to atone for our sins. This is the basis of our relationship. That this prince, who is the lamb, is sinless and is our Messiah. So this shows up again. Yeah. So uh, as we've been talking through these last few weeks, there's these, these uh, such rich connections between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And Pastor Kurt said it at the beginning, but isn't it interesting that these are the two books of the Bible that have struggled to stay in the canon? That uh, throughout history, people wanted to throw them out, and they have so much in common. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so in Revelation, the sacrificial system fundamentally changes, but it's there. Let me ask you a trick question. Let's see if you fall for it. Uh, what is the primary animal that's mentioned in the book of Revelation? That's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The dragon? Yeah. Mentioned a couple times. According to Facebook, it's the lion. That's what I was wanting. And I was hoping none of you would blurt it out. Oh, sorry. because if you said lion, <laughs> I was going to say, no. The lion is mentioned once. The lamb is mentioned 17 times. Oh, the lamb. Oh, we've just been talking about this lamb in uh, Ezekiel. And is there any references to this lamb and sacrifice? Oh, actually, yes. So let me tell, let me give you the context of this. So I'm I'm grinding an axe with you a little bit, but I think it will help you. So so John is beside himself. He sees this scroll which represents God's purposes for the world, and nobody can open it. And he's like weeping because nobody can open it. And he hears this voice, verse five, chapter five. Then one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. See the lion. Like see." Like, open your eyes and see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals, and everybody goes wild. Yeah, Jesus is coming back like a lion. Yeah, rock on. And then what does he see? Then I saw a lamb. That's free. Then I saw the lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Now that's weird. Normally, Kurt, when the dad cuts the, cuts the throat, what does that lamb do? It dies. It dies. <laughs> but now this lamb is standing with its throat flapped open, bloody. That is the picture. You know, I always, when I sit in, cha in the chapel for Vespers, if you look up into one of the windows, there's a lamb. They screwed it up. It's a technical term, don't worry. Yeah, they screwed it up. There's this perfect spot for us to change out one of the tiles. One of those tiles that is white and its neck needs to be red. Right? 
because that he is sharpie. I don't know if that would work or not. But yeah, because that, that's what he's seeing. That, that is sacrifice, right? That the Son of God has become the sacrificial system for us, right? And he is standing. He has overcome. Uh, it, he has overcome through, through death. And then if you... And then this image just carries it all the way through the book. And then if you get to the end, especially where all these connections are, uh, this is what he, John sees. And if Ezekiel would have been in John's time, Ezekiel would have seen the same thing. I did not see the temple in the city. Verse 22, chapter 21. I did not see the temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See how it's changed? The temple was the place that sacrifice happened. Now the one who has been sacrificed and lives is the actual temple, right? It's better. The city does not need the sun or, or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. Wait a second, John. I just thought you said that the lamb was the temple. Now you're saying the lamb is the lamp. And John will say, Yes. I told you this is hard to explain, right? Uh, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. Ooh. What did we just hear about the east gate? It's always shut. And so it's interesting that, that in some way, Ezekiel and John are seeing the exact same thing with the exact opposite symbolism God is never leaving in Ezekiel in Revelation because of the lamb everyone has access to God the glory of the, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those names who are written in the lambs book of life thanks be to god so does that mean we worship livestock when you go to heaven there's a sacred lamb and you have to bow before it i have a statue i always have statues artifacts you should see my office it's interesting come by sometime and i'll horrify you but this this statue grabbed my attention because it was used by the early church to represent jesus and it's a four-headed lamb with horns and wings. And it looks like something out of a demonic uh, movie. I mean, it's, just, it's horrifying. But what they were trying to represent is these lambs. They were giving him horns because it's power. They have four heads because of the four gospels. It has wings because the gospel of Jesus moves to all people and changes. So there's a very different way of thinking about it, but they pictured it in a way that kind of would scare and horrify us. But this is a whole system with the sacrifice. God does not ultimately care about lambs, does he? No, not really. It's a symbol. It's a present. It's a sign of the relationship between us. That lamb represents his son who loved us so much he came to the earth and he died a thief's death on a cross so that we could be there with him one day. Sacrifice is a part of love. 
It's not rules. It's not a regulation. It's not what you have to do. He didn't have to save us, did he? We know we didn't deserve it. His nature and his love led him to make a choice that cost him a lot. So think about when you give gifts. I'm proud to say I come from a long line of Germans who take gift giving very seriously. It's, it's a high art, and there's nothing better than finding the right gift for someone that shows you know the person, you know what they're interested in, and you sort of acknowledge that. It used to frustrate the holy cow out of my father. Because Christmas time, he's not German, and Christmas time was like way too serious and sentimental and like, what? This is crap. It sucks. Just give him underwear. It's fine. And so I'd hear my dad say stuff like, you know, I don't know how anybody competes with that. Why, why bother? You know, give a gift card. I'm like, you, you, you missed the point. Just because Jesus has given a great gift doesn't mean he's not interested to see what kind of gifts we can give. So think about what you do. I try this, the way that we interact with people. There's lots of things we don't have to do for somebody. There are beautiful, incredible things we can do. Little bits of sacrifice for our kids that go that extra mile. Again, is God going to love us more? No. Is the world going to turn easier? No. But how much does that reflect God in us when we try to create those land moments? You can't look at the lamb and not know the story of love. It's not an economic exchange. Well, two ounces of lamb blood gets me an inch. No, it's not. It's not that way. It's a way of communicating through exchanging. That's, that's love. So I'll stop there. Questions? I know this is a weird Bible study talking about killing animals and locking doors and never open them, but promise me, when you get your tour of heaven one day, remember this, because there's going to be a whole lot of things you're like, what, what is that? Why did God put that here? Wait, wait, I thought there were animals up here. Um, hopefully we can have this conversation again in heaven one day as we figure out what it is to have Jesus be the light, the sun, and be the lamp. And then be the daily sacrifice. How all that works, I don't begin to know. But I know I want to be there. With as many of us as we can get up there. Other comments? Questions? Yes. Hold on, hold on. Wait for the microphone. What is the reason? Close to, close to your mouth. We're deaf. Hello? There we okay. go. <laughs> what was the reason for smearing the blood in the temple on Yom Kippur. both sides? Yeah. The soul, the life, the nefesh, uh, so the technical term, is in the blood. So like I have to teach our confirmation kits, where's the soul in your body? And, you know, we, oh, it's in our hearts, our mind. The Bible's very clear. As blood moves through your body, that's where the soul connects. So that's the, the, that's the most important part of the animal. So that's why they do a kosher. They cut the neck and allow the life, the nefesh, the soul, to flow out of it, and they catch it. So it's literally, when they smear the blood, life for life. 
And it's the nefesh, the soul of Christ. It, you know, we could have made that translation long ago. The blood of Christ, you can translate that the soul of Christ. But we didn't always make the connection between soul and blood like they did. So we just left it blood. I was horrified as a kid. There's a fountain. You know, remember that hymn? And it's a fountain of blood? It's like, what is wrong with us? It's like, again, we don't worship blood. It's that soul that's given, that love that's given for us. It's a very good question. But if you do start smearing blood around your house, you're going to get a visit from the police. So just saying. Yeah, don't do it. Reggie, did you have a question? Yeah. Uh, Hold on, Reggie. Daniel's bringing you the microphone. There you go. Uh, what I was going <clears throat> excuse me. What I was going to ask you uh, when you when we get to heaven, will there be will he have food for you when you get to heaven? Will there be food? Yes. Yes. That's all I wanted to ask. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm telling you, Reggie, asking the important questions today. And I'm not. I'm telling you, that's, I'm serious, Reggie. It, it, it's it's far more profound than you realize when you say that. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yes. Okay. Yeah, whenever Jesus is in that upper room eating the Passover, right. what, he, what does he say? I'm not going to eat this again until I eat it anew with you in the kingdom of my Father. Right? Okay, this, this is a aside for Reggie's question. When my youngest daughter was four years old, her favorite snack was crackers and cheese. And one day, she, as she's eating them, she, she looked at me and said... Will God have crackers and cheese in heaven? And I said, okay, quick, Mom, think. I said, well, you know what? If crackers and cheese is something that you need in heaven, God will have it. And she said, well, good, because if there isn't, I don't want to go. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. From the mouths of babes. Yeah. The question Reggie asked actually put something in my head. Would the food have to be kosher? <laughs> no, it wasn't really, no, not it's, really it's, a it's joke. A very, very big, big yeah. question. And we literally could spend forever trying to answer this. So it will be heavenly food. So it will not be just what we know as a little bit of life that has to be given for us to sustain life. But God sees that enough as a metaphor that there will be, again, remember, in heaven, how do we exist? This is so important. Christians always remember this. How, what is our fundamental nature in heaven? We are a soul with a what? With a body, a new body. We are not souls. Again, we learn this stuff as kids, but that's Greek Gnosticism. We, if we are judged righteous, and Christ looks at you, he places you in a new eternal body. We are fundamentally meant to be body and soul. So there is a way that we still interact with, new, with the new creation. So there is still a world. There is still you know, planets and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's fundamentally changed. So we don't know 
the, the depths of that. The Jews have actually argued this point in the Talmud till your head wants to explode, arguing about a kosher pig. And it's their belief that it will, because it's this reconstitution of the way the world should be. And things that were naturally unclean, like pigs and Gentiles, will be able to exist in heaven because this river that we talked about has transformed them, the way of the Messiah, the way of the Lord. So it's, it's a very, very deep question when you get into it. All right, you're going to hurt me tonight. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, when we get to heaven, you know how we walk and everything now? Yes. Will we still feel the same up there? Yes. But you don't get tired, you don't wear out, you don't get sick. I mean, it's the body that never, never wears out. Now, there's no cars or buses or that we know of. Not sure how we got there tonight, but we did. Yeah, and we it did. was good. So, but if you don't like the food, for God's sake, don't say anything. All right, because <laughs> God made it. All right, just keep your mouth shut. All right, let's pray. Lord our God, we do feel like children, as we should, trying to imagine the greatest gift that was given to us. A gift that we understand in the words Jesus. A gift that we understand in the words of Lamb and life given for us. But we hear also Jesus' words that he goes to prepare a place for us. A place that he knows if we need cheese and crackers, there will be cheese and crackers. A place where if we've wanted to be a priest our whole life, we will see a temple where we can be a priest with a God that has always loved us. But beyond the images that you try to use to explain this, we pray, O oh Lord, we remember that this is Emmanuel. This is the garden. This is the place where we are with you. Help us, Father, to live into that moment because we know you start it right now. Not just the day that we die, but tonight as we go home, your soul seeks to touch our soul and focus us on the world that really is. We know we've got to work in this one. We've got to make choices. We've got to fight, it seems, evil every day. But may we never forget where we really belong and the great, incredible, mind-blowing place that you've prepared for us, that you're excited for us to see. One day, that man, that angel will come and give us a tour. Help us to know you on that day because we knew you in the little ways before we decided to spend all eternity with you. Help us to be your people here and there. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Good night. Good night.